We are uh, this morning in our live stream concluding a series in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's a series we began back in September called Beginnings. We've been looking at a number of beginnings that are outlined in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So far in Genesis, we have seen uh, in the opening chapters that God created a perfect world, a perfect world for humans to live in. He had a plan and a purpose for humans. He had a plan that the earth would be filled with his glory like the waters cover the sea. But we also saw in those opening chapters of Genesis that man rebelled against God. Man fell. Sin entered the world. Brokenness entered the world. Brokenness like disease. And ultimately death entered the world because of sin. But even in that moment of the fall, even in Genesis 3, when God was dealing with man and woman and the serpent and in their sin, God promised hope. He promised that one day there would be an offspring of the woman who would come and defeat the evil one once and for all. And then in the chapters that followed, most of them have been recording, have been tracing descendants that came from Adam and Eve, the first humans. We have seen passage after passage about sons, passages that trace lines of descent. And all the while, the readers of Genesis are invited to be looking for that promised offspring as offspring after offspring, son after son is given. We saw in chapters 4 and 5 the contrast between the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth. It would be from Seth's line that ultimately Noah and his family would come. And as God destroyed all of wicked humanity in the flood besides Noah and his family, we find out that it would be through Seth's line that the offspring, the promised offspring, would come. Now the last time we were in Genesis together as a church, we were in chapters 10 and 11, and we weren't looking at any one specific line. Instead, we were looking at the dispersion of the nations across the world. But now when we come to chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, which is our passage this morning, we're back to looking at a line. The first part of this morning's passage, which begins in verse 10, is a genealogy. Now it's a different kind of genealogy than the last one we looked at. The last one we looked at was in chapter 10, and it was shaped like a tree. It was recording the dispersion of nations across the earth. But chapter 11, the genealogy that we're going to look at today is a line. It's very similar to the genealogy that we looked at in chapter 5, you might recall. That genealogy in chapter 5 listed 10 generations from Adam through Seth to Noah. Well, the genealogy we're going to look at today in chapter 11 also lists 10 generations, beginning with Noah's son, Shem. And as the author of Genesis, Moses, writes out these genealogies and makes them so similar, he is using those similarities to show us that there is a connection between these two genealogies. This genealogy is a continuation of the line from Adam and Seth and through Noah from which the promised offspring of the woman would come. So let's read together. We're going to start at Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. These are the generations of Shem. 
When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Aber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Aber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Aber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Aber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. On January 1st, 2020, if I had asked you, what do you think the next three months are going to look like? What would you have said? Now, you know, you would have known that you can't predict the future. We all know that unpredictable things happen. But over time, we generally come to expect certain things to stay the same. If I had asked you that question, you might have said, well, you know, I can't predict the future. But I'm sure I'm, over the next three months, I'm at least going to be going to work. I'm sure I'm at least going to be going to school. I'm sure that at least I'll be going to church on Sunday morning. I'm sure at least I'll be able to go to the store and find toilet paper in stock. We can't predict the future. There's a lot of things that have happened that we never would have planned. Let me ask you this, though. On January 1st, 2020, if I had asked you, what do you think God wants to do in your life? What would you have said? How would you, how would you have answered that question? Now, again, you would have known you can't predict the future. But maybe you had some sort of expectation about what God was going to do in your heart, do in your life, do through your life. And now, just like with all of those expectations that we had about how this year was going to unfold, things have changed. And maybe because things have changed, you're wondering what God is up to. Maybe you're a teacher and you thought, 
God's plan for me is to love and care for my students. And now school is canceled and you feel aimless. Maybe you're a student and you thought, well, God's plan for me is to share the gospel with that girl who's in my class. And now you don't see her and you wonder, well, did I miss it? Maybe you thought, well, God's plan for our family is that we would get out of debt. And maybe now you're out of work or struggling to get work and you're wondering, what is God up to? We are facing a trial in this particular season, unlike anything that we could have predicted, certainly. But the truth is, throughout our lives, we face the unpredictable. We face circumstances that we couldn't have seen coming and we wouldn't have asked for if we had. These circumstances test our faith. They cause us to ask questions. They may even cause us to doubt. The trials that we face may even seem like they're interfering with God's plan. That they might even threaten to derail God's purpose for us. But what we need to hear from the word of God today is that nothing can stop God's plan. Our God is the God of the impossible. Nothing is too hard for him. And the things that happen in our life that look like they are interfering with his plan are actually part of his plan. These last verses of Genesis 11 that we just read, uh, they begin with a line, a pretty predictable line, a line that follows a pattern. And it's really going in the direction that we would expect things to be going. It's going in the direction that things have been going since Genesis 1 and Genesis 3 and Genesis 5. But then we get to the end of Genesis 11 and things just don't add up. We look at what happens at the end of Genesis 11 and there's these circumstances that don't seem to align with God's plan. In fact, there's some circumstances here that look like they're threatening to even derail God's plan. And that's only the beginning. As Genesis unfolds, all sorts of stuff happens that looks like it can't possibly fit into God's plan. That looks like it's an insurmountable obstacle. But what we need to understand from the word of God this morning is that God often chooses to include in his plan things that do not make sense to us. God allows us to experience things that seem impossible to overcome. And these things test our faith. But as God lovingly and brilliantly and easily overcomes these obstacles, he fuels our faith. Here's the main thing that I believe God wants you to hear from his word this morning. Trust the God of the impossible. Trust the God of the impossible. So let's look at our text for this morning, Genesis 11. Uh, the genealogy that we read a moment ago, uh, that genealogy really zooms out to a, a wide angle as we look at the line that coming from Shem all the way down to Terah and his sons. We're covering years and years and years, big picture. 
But then when we come to verse 27, the story zooms in on a specific scene on Terah and his family. And in this brief passage of scripture in verses 27 to 32, uh, it, it unfolds in three scenes. And I'd like to label them this way. First, an unfaithful home. Second, an unopened womb. And third, an unfinished journey. An unfaithful home, an unopened womb, and an unfinished journey. So first, an unfaithful home. Look with me again at verses 27 and 28. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. So we're introduced to Terah, one of the descendants of Shem. We're introduced to his sons, and we're told that they came from the place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, this is a place in the region of Mesopotamia, southeast of Babylon, in what we know today as Iraq. And in Ur of the Chaldeans, in this region of, uh, that's also known as Babylonia, uh, it was steeped in paganism. Joshua 24 in verse 2 tells us that Terah and Abram and Nahor, uh, they engaged in the pagan religion of their homeland. They were worshipers of false gods. As we come to this point in the story, we see an unfaithful home. A home that's not marked by devotion to Yahweh. And a home where you would not expect the promised offspring to come from. Well, second then, we see an unopened womb. Look again at verses 29 and 30. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So we're introduced to uh, not only Terah's sons, but also their wives. And, you know, as we come to this, uh, this verse, we're told that Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren. And in case that wasn't clear enough, he adds the detail, she had no child. Now here, this is a short paragraph. Details are sparse. I mean, basically just have names and locations and relationships. There's not a whole lot going on here. So when a detail like this is not only included, but repeated, it should have our attention. After this genealogy, I mean, put this into context. We've just seen this long genealogy, son after son after son after son after son after son. But it seems at this point in the story that if this line is going to continue, it's not going to be through Sarai. She's barren. She has no child. This line may continue, but it's not going to be through Abram, it seems. Then third, we come to an unfinished journey. In verses 31 and 32, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law and his son Abram's wife and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. So here in these last two verses of the chapter, Terah and his family leave the region of Mesopotamia in the east, and they're going toward Canaan in the west. But they stop along their journey in a place called Haran. 
Well, so this raises a lot of questions. Why did they leave their home? Why were they going toward Canaan? And why did they stop before they could get there? Well, we start to get an answer to some of those questions in the very next verse, in chapter 12 and verse 1. Uh, Read that with me. Now, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So in this verse, Yahweh tells Abram to go to journey from his country. Well, his country is what chapter 11, verse 28 referred to as the land of his kindred. It's, it's Ur. So he's to go from there, go from his father's house, and go to Canaan. Now, in the flow of Genesis, Genesis 12, 1 comes after Genesis chapter 11 and the story that we just looked at. But what we see in the rest of Scripture is that chapter 12, verse 1, actually, actually records an event that happened before Terah and his family left on their journey from Ur to Canaan. Uh, for instance, in Acts 7 and verses 2 through 4, as Stephen is speaking before the Sanhedrin, he tells us that God commanded Abram to go before they left Mesopotamia. Um, and so what we see is that uh, this call of God actually came before they, uh, they left on their journey. So the answer to why did they leave is that Terah and his family left Ur toward Canaan because Yahweh called Abram to go. So then that raises the question, why did they stop? Well, to be honest, it's not totally clear. But if we look at the details of the story, it seems that Terah held them back. In verse 1 of chapter 12, God told Abram to leave his father's house. That's part of what he had instructed him to do in order to go on this journey that he called him to. But in chapter 11 and verse 31, we see that Abram's not leaving his father. In fact, his father is leading the journey. So Abram goes toward Canaan, but he's not leaving his father to do so. And then they stop, but there's no indication that Abram wanted to. In fact, what we see afterward is that Abram continues on once Terah dies. And so it seems that Abram was stopping because he was just doing whatever his father wanted to do. It seems as though it took Terah dying for Abram to leave his father's house and go to Canaan as God had instructed him to do. And so we're left at the end of chapter 11 anyway with an unfinished journey. So all in all in this story, we we see things that are not positive. We see an unfaithful home, a place where you're not likely to see the offspring, the promised savior coming from. We see an unopened womb that seems to be a dead end for the line of Shem. And then we see this unfinished journey that stops short of where God had intended. So here at the beginning of Abram's story, at the beginning of Abram's journey, we need to recognize that God had a plan. God had a plan for humanity, and God had a plan for Abram. And these things that we've just looked at don't make sense. The unfaithful home, the unopened womb, the unfinished journey, they don't make sense in light of God's plan for Abram and in light of God's plan for humanity. And these seemingly impossible to overcome obstacles are going to test Abram's faith. 
But as God lovingly and brilliantly and easily overcomes these obstacles, he will fuel Abram's faith. God would overcome Abram's unfaithful home by calling him to leave that home and calling him to himself. And Abram would do that. He would leave his home. But much harder to overcome than much, much, much harder to overcome than Abram's home was Abram's own lack of faith. The unfinished journey would be overcome, as we said, after Terah's death. Abram would go on to Canaan uh, before we reach the end of chapter 12. But Abram's spiritual journey was far from over. And nothing, nothing tested Abram's faith along his journey like the unopened womb of Sarai. Read again verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 12 with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So we see God's plan for Abram. He's calling him out of his unfaithful home. He's calling him to finish this unfinished journey. And he wants to make a great nation out of Abram. And that's great. There's just one problem. A great nation can't come from a barren womb. A great nation can't come from an unopened womb. And so as the story continues what we'll see is that this, this obstacle that is seemingly impossible to overcome is an incredible test for Abram's faith. And all along the way, he struggles to believe that God is actually going to do what he says he is going to do. And all along the way, God is growing Abram's faith. And he draws him to himself and he fuels his faith as he continues to demonstrate that he is the God of the impossible. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, as Abram's uh, journey continues, he says, okay, I guess if God's going to make me a great nation, then this man Eliezer, he's not my son, but uh, he's the heir to my house. So God, I guess he's the one who you're going to make a great nation through. And God comes to Abram and he says, no, your own son, not this man who's not your son, your own son is going to be the one through whom I make of you a great nation. Abram struggled to believe, but God was determined to accomplish his plan. And along the way, he grew Abram's faith. In fact, Genesis 15 and verse 6 even says that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Well, so then the story continues in Genesis chapter 16. And Abram believes that God is really going to give him his own son. But he and Sarah, uh, Sarai both say, well, there's no way that it's going to come from Sarai's unopened womb. So Abram has a son with Sarai's uh, maidservant, Hagar, a son named Ishmael. And Abram thinks, okay, well, this, is, this must be how God is going to accomplish his plan for me. It's not going to be through Sarai's unopened womb. It's going to be through this son, my own son, just like he said, uh, that came from Hagar. And for 13 years... Abram thought this was how God was going to accomplish his plan. But then chapter 17, um, and as a sidebar, in chapter 17 is where Abraham and, or Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah. 
um, in chapter 17, God comes to them and he says to Abraham, no, I am going to give you a son through Sarah. This young man is not going to be your heir. I am going to give you a son from Sarah. I'm going to bless her. When Abraham and Sarah heard this, they laughed at God. But God insisted that he is going to do this. Look with me, if you would, at Genesis 18, 14. As Abraham and Sarah struggle to believe, as they laugh at God and him telling that he is going to overcome this seemingly insurmountable obstacle to accomplish his plan, here's what God says in Genesis 18 and verse 14 in the face of this laughter. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Abraham and Sarah struggled to believe, but God was determined to accomplish his plan. And he demonstrated that no obstacle was too hard for him, not even Abraham and Sarah's unbelief. God grew both Abraham and Sarah's faith through this. Uh, Hebrews 11 and uh, verse 11 tells us that by faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. God did ultimately give Abraham and Sarah a son. God was faithful, just as Sarah believed. And along the way, even as they struggled to believe, even as these obstacles came in the way that seemed to be insurmountable, God grew their faith. He grew both Abraham and Sarah's faith. But then, talk about something that seemed to threaten to derail God's plan. The ultimate test of Abraham's faith came as one day God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. <laughs> you mean Sarah's son? The promised son? The one that you said was going to be through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed? My only son? What in the world? Well, that's actually not how Abraham responded. Because throughout his journey of faith, Abraham time and time and time and time again had seen God's faithfulness. So Abraham moved forward in faith. He moved forward in obedience. And Hebrews even tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead if it was part of his plan. He had seen God overcome obstacle after obstacle and it grew his faith and he trusted that nothing was too hard for Yahweh. Nothing was going to stop God from accomplishing his plan and his purpose. And so he was getting ready to kill his own son out of faith in Yahweh and God stopped him. He stopped Abraham and provided a ram as a substitute instead. 
And on the heels of this event, as Abraham did this act of faith in his greatest test of faith and his greatest demonstration of faith, listen to what God says in Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God had a plan that he was working for his glory. And no obstacle was too hard for him to overcome. Abraham had come from an unfaithful home, but Yahweh drawed him to himself. Sarah had an unopened womb. The line of Adam and Eve's offspring seemed to come to a screeching halt, but God proved that he is the God of the impossible, and he gave her a son. As, just as Abraham had struggled to finish his physical journey to Canaan, so he struggled in his journey of faith. But God proved that not even Abraham's unbelief was too hard for him to overcome. And what we see as the story concludes here in Genesis 22, and as it culminates at this climactic moment, what we need to recognize is, yes, God had a plan for humanity. Yes, God had a plan for this nation, but he also had a plan to grow Abraham's faith. It was part of his plan. And all of the obstacles that looked like they threatened God's plan, they were all part of the plan. They were all part of the plan to test Abraham's faith and to ultimately fuel Abraham's faith. We come to Genesis 22 in this climactic moment where God promises that it would be through this offspring, through Abraham's offspring, that he would bless all of the families of the earth. But of course, we recognize that Isaac was not the promised offspring of the woman. He was not the offspring that God had promised back in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, Isaac wasn't even the most impossible baby to be born in the Bible. If you think opening a barren womb is hard, try a virgin birth. But that's exactly what God did. He sent his son to be born of a virgin. And if Abraham killing Isaac seemed to derail God's plan Imagine how much more the death of Jesus looked like it would derail God's plan. Here's this virgin-born son sent from God, the one who is claiming to be the Christ, who lives on this earth and he gathers followers. He's claiming to be the king of kings, and all of a sudden he is put to death. If anything ever looked like it was going to be If anything was unpredictable, it was that. If anything looked unexpected, it was that. If anything looked like it would threaten to derail God's plan, not only for this one man, but for the whole human race, it was that. But in Jesus' death, even though Jesus' death looked like it was impossible to overcome, it was exactly what God planned. Jesus died on purpose. And in Jesus' death, he overcame the 
greatest obstacle between us and God, our sin. In Romans 8, verse 3, Paul says that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. By using the circumstance that seemed insurmountable, by using this thing that seemed totally unlikely, God overcame the greatest obstacle between us and him, our sin. And then on the third day, God yet again did the impossible. He raised Jesus from the dead. And in Jesus' resurrection, the promised offspring of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, Jesus overcame death. Romans 6 verse 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Through circumstances that looked like they would derail God's plan, God accomplished his plan. Through Jesus, God overcame the greatest obstacles standing in between us and him. He overcame sin. He overcame death. So that now, through Jesus, the offspring of Abraham through whom all families of the earth can be blessed, through Jesus, even the person from the most faithless home can be redeemed by him. Through Jesus, even the most insurmountable barriers can be overcome. Through Jesus, even the person who has failed in their journey of faith the most can be restored and forgiven. If God redeemed Abraham from his unfaithful home, if God brought life out of Sarah's unopened womb, if God overcame Abraham's unbelief to finish his journey, if God provided Jesus as the ultimate impossible offspring, if God gave up his son to overcome sin, if God resurrected Jesus to overcome death, then there is nothing that is impossible for him. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Nothing is going to stop his plan. And through Abraham and Sarah's journey, the God of the impossible wanted to grow their faith. He wanted to grow faith in their hearts. And Abraham and Sarah's story is in the Bible so he can grow our faith too. So he can fuel our faith in him. God has proven time and time and time again that he is the God of the impossible. And today he wants you to trust him. As we consider the trials that we are experiencing today, these unexpected circumstances that we find ourselves in, we need to understand that God's plan has not been derailed. Everything is going exactly according to plan. Whatever else God wants to do, and I, don't, I can't even begin to imagine all of the things that God wants to accomplish, that he can only accomplish this way and no other way. But whatever else God wants to do, I can promise you this. God wants to use this trial to grow your faith. He wants to use this season so that you would trust him more. As we face sickness, as we face financial struggles, as we face isolation, 
disappointment, anxiety, depression, none of those barriers can stop God's plan. And none of those barriers can interfere with God's love for you. These things are real. These things are challenging. And God has not promised to make the pain go away. God has not promised that our bank account will always be full. God has not promised that we won't get sick. But he has promised that none of these things will stop his plan. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 31, says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is determined to love us. Our God is determined to meet us right where we are. Our God is determined to draw us to himself. Our God is determined to give us rest and peace in himself. Our God is determined to bring us safely home to him one day. And our God has proven time and time and time and time again that nothing will stop his plan. So trust this God. Trust the God of the impossible. Maybe you're watching this today and you've never trusted in this God. Maybe you're watching this today and you just stumbled upon it. I would invite you to trust this God for the first time. Maybe you've listened to us as we have looked at the word and you've heard from scripture how God has proven himself over and over and over again as trustworthy. Uh, let me invite you, place your faith in this God. He is the one true God, the creator of all things. And he made you to know him, to love him, to have a relationship with him forever. But the Bible also tells us that you are a sinner. 
I am a sinner. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, We've rejected this God, and we have set ourselves up as the Lord of our own lives. And the Bible tells us that the punishment for sin is death, and that there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with this God. But the God of the impossible has done the unthinkable in Christ. The God of the impossible, as we have already seen, has overcome sin and death in Christ. God sent his son. He came and he was born of a virgin, an impossible birth. He came and he lived a perfect life, impossible for you and me. He came and he died on a cross and he rose from the grave. So if you place your faith in Jesus, you can know God. You can experience life forever with him. You can have your heart and your life transformed for all of eternity. Even though you have sinned, Jesus can forgive you. It is not impossible. There is nothing too hard for our God. Even though you have failed, Jesus succeeded for you. There is nothing too hard for our God. So let go. Let go of your sin. Let go of living for yourself. Let go of your attempts to make yourself acceptable before God and receive the gift of Jesus' righteousness and forgiveness and eternal life. Receive what the God of the impossible has done for you. Turn to Jesus and trust in the God of the impossible. If you do know Jesus, and maybe you're struggling to trust him right now, my encouragement to you is the same. Trust. Trust in this God. Trust in the God of the impossible. As we experience these difficult days, we experience trials. We experience pain. We experience boredom. We experience stress. We experience financial burdens. And in all these things, God is inviting you to trust him. He is inviting us to trust him. He is inviting us to trust that he still loves us. He's inviting us to trust that he is still at work to make us like Jesus, and nothing has stopped that. He's inviting us to trust him for peace. He's inviting us to trust him for joy. He's inviting us to trust him for rest. He's inviting us to trust him for satisfaction. He's inviting us to trust him for wisdom. He's inviting us to trust him for strength. He's inviting us to trust him for purpose. He's inviting us to trust him with our time and with our decisions and with our money and with our family and with our health and with our country and with our church. He's inviting us to trust that he's still on mission to fill the earth with his glory. He's inviting us to continue to carry out our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ in Erath County and around the world by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We know that we can trust him because over and over and over and over and over again, God has proven that he is the God of the impossible. And so my prayer for you today My prayer for me today is that we would trust the God of the impossible.
Let me pray for us. Father, you are the God of the impossible. There is nothing too hard for you. You are the God who did not spare your own son. You are the God who overcame sin and death. You are the God who is over all things. You are the God who has the world in your hands. And God, you are sovereign even over the coronavirus. You're sovereign even over a failing economy. You're sovereign even over not being able to find work. You're sovereign even over being, classes being canceled. You're sovereign over our church not being able to meet together. You're sovereign over all of the things that are taking place in our lives. And Lord, you're sovereign over those particular ways that people are suffering, that not everyone else is suffering. That has just been compounded by all of the things that are going on. But Lord, we saw from your word that nothing, not even in these things, can we be separated from your love in Christ Jesus. No, in all of these things, in the suffering, in the trials, in the obstacles, Lord, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use these trials to fuel our faith. Lord, they test our faith. We struggle to believe. But Lord, just as you did with Abraham and Sarah, I pray that you would use this day, this season, this trial to fuel our faith as we see you continue to accomplish your plan, even in the pain, even in the suffering, even in the struggle, even in all of the difficulty that we are experiencing. Lord, fuel our faith in you, the God of the impossible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.